On June 9, an Iraqi militant group known as the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria, or ISIS, uh, conquered the city of Mosul and started to drive south toward the Iraqi capital of Baghdad and in the process caused about three divisions of Iraqi army troops, perhaps 30,000 troops, to simply evaporate. Uh, in the context of this crisis, where is Iraq going? What's the prognosis? And what then should the United States do about it? And I think the short version of the answers to those questions is I think there's a serious risk that we're heading towards a long, ugly, ethno-sectarian civil war, not unlike the kind that we've seen in Syria in recent years, and not unlike the kind that we saw in Iraq itself in 2006 and prior. And given that, at this point in the process, there aren't a lot of particularly attractive options for the United States. I think we're left with a set of opportunities at best to cap and constrain the damage and to try to prevent the war from spreading, but I don't think there's very much we can do at this point to avert the prospect of a long, grinding war with enormous potential humanitarian consequences and important security stakes for the United States. Now to understand where we've gotten there and why this is the case, it's important to spend a little bit of time thinking about where this conflict came from. The ISIS eruption is related in important ways to the war that came before. The conflict in Iraq while U.S. troops there were there was already to an important degree an ethno-sectarian identity civil war pitting primarily Iraqi Shiite Muslims against Iraqi Sunni Muslims. That war went into remission as a result of a combination of a Sunni realignment in the form of what was called the Anbar Awakening or the Sons of Iraq movement and its interaction with the surge of U.S. troops ordered by President Bush in 2007. But the result of those two things working together wasn't the annihilation of the old Sunni insurgency. It was a series of essentially negotiated ceasefires and mostly between local Sunni militant groups and the U.S. military. So what we had by, say, 2008 was a highly mobilized, highly intense ethno-sectarian civil war that had gone into ceasefire, but with all of the old combatants still in the field, still armed, still with their previous leadership, and importantly, still frightened to death of each other. In this kind of conflict, fears and hatreds and worries get seriously deepened and don't just vanish overnight because somebody's declared a ceasefire. In the Balkans, which in many ways is the best analogy for the problem we have faced and face now in Iraq, no one would have thought that Bosnian Muslims and Croatian uh, Catholics and Serbian Orthodox would simply wake up the morning after a ceasefire, bury the hatchet, and all live together peacefully thereafter. And in fact, ceasefire settlements of this kind are notoriously unstable. Of about 23 of these that we've seen between 1940 and 1992, about half of them collapsed within five years of the settlement. Often, the difference between the ones that collapse into renewed warfare and the ones that don't is the presence of some kind of outside third party to act as a peacekeeper, to lower the temperature, damp escalatory spirals, and help prevent misunderstandings, slights, worries, uh, attempts to get away with things on the local part from spiraling into countrywide renewed violence. And in an important sense, 
The function that the U.S. military was providing in Iraq by, say, 2008 was essentially the same as outside peacekeepers were providing in the Balkans after the end of the 1990s civil wars there. We were acting as an interpositional force to keep the temperature down and, and damp escalatory spirals. When those peacekeepers effectively withdrew in 2011, that stabilizing force was gone and a collection of Iraqi communities that retained their arms, retained their organizations, and importantly retained their existential fears of each other were now left to work this out by themselves. And predictably, the strategy that Nouri al-Maliki, the Shiite president of Iraq, adopted in that rather dangerous environment was to try and monopolize force as quickly as possible in his own office to suppress rivals that if they seized power would kill him and would kill the people around him. And those rivals included not just other Shiite political parties, but of course the former Sunni insurgency. So he then engaged in a multi-year process of power monopolization and oppression of Sunni rivals that have increasingly convinced Sunnis that they face existential threats from the Shiite government. And that created a fertile breeding ground for a militant group that's a rebranded offshoot of the old Al-Qaeda local affiliate in Iraq, now called ISIS, to build strength, gain support, and make it possible to threaten the stability of the entire country. In that kind of environment, in all probability, we are not looking at a short-term, temporary spike in violence that the government will simply be able to suppress. Instead, I think we're looking at a much longer, much bigger conflict with a serious danger that over the course of five, six, ten years of renewed violence could end up spreading across Iraq's borders to involve other neighboring states in the Gulf that also have important Sunni, Shia, ethno-sectarian fault lines dividing their countries. The stakes here are that we could potentially end up with the humanitarian disaster and the national security consequences of what could end up being, if we are not careful, not just a longer civil war in Iraq, but a potential regional conflict along Sunni-Shia fault lines that are much, much broader than just Iraq itself. Now, what then can we do about this? And the problem is ethno-sectarian warfare is a bit like the toothpaste and the tube. Most of the time, it's in the tube, but once it comes out, it's a lot harder to put it back. In my view, we had a chance at relatively modest cost to reduce substantially the odds of the situation we now find ourselves in by keeping American troops in Iraq, but that's water over the dam. At this point, we are faced with a problem that's much, much bigger than what American military assistance to Nur al-Maliki in Iraq can deal with. Airstrikes, intelligence support, training and advising, providing arms and equipment to the Iraqi military, all these things may be able to help at the margin, but they're not going to be enough to end a civil war at the scale of mobilization and the scale of local stakes that all major Iraqi parties see in this war. So I think at most, U.S. policy is going to affect this at the margin. Now, our effect at the margin should be helpful rather than not. 
And so it's important that whatever we do, we make conditional on political reform by Maliki to open his government and be more accommodating of legitimate Sunni grievances against his Shiite government. It's unlikely that that's going to have much effect in the near term, but over time, perhaps, we can have some cumulative influence. The other biggest opportunity that we have, it seems to me, is to work with the neighboring countries and reduce the danger of contagion at least reduce the odds that this war spreads beyond Iraq's borders. But none of these things are a particularly happy story. I'm afraid at this point we're looking at a long war that's going to have negative consequences both for Iraqis and for others in the region and probably for Americans as well.